Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles or in your bulletins to Isaiah chapter 11. You can find the text that we'll be looking at this morning printed on page 8 in your bulletins. If you didn't bring a Bible and would like to follow along in one, you can find our passage this morning on page 575 in the Pew Bibles. We'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 11 in just a few moments. In case you haven't noticed, we are now in December. Wow. (laughs) So here we are in what we often call the Christmas season. And stores seem to be trying to start the Christmas season back in September or October, Um, But Christmas overall is a time of anticipation, isn't it? One of the things that I love the most is to see how excited children are about getting presents on Christmas morning. It starts months in advance, and the closer we get to it, the almost more and more uncontrollable it seems, the more it consumes them, this anticipation and excitement. And from what I've noticed, children aren't the only ones Many of us are just waiting to decorate, Um, texting back and forth, how soon is too soon to put up those decorations or to bring out those Christmas playlists. And we love to see the lights and savor the food and plan the parties and time with family and friends. Others of us, though, may not look forward to this time of year as much, maybe because longing always inevitably leads to letdown, doesn't it? Or maybe because this time of year is marked by pain and loss. But regardless of what we think about the Christmas season as a whole, Advent is a time of year for Christians that helps us cultivate a healthy sense of longing. The church calls these weeks leading up to Christmas And so this year, we'll be joining with the broader church and considering some passages from Isaiah. And let me read for us God's word, and then we'll pray and ask his help as we consider it. This shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his help as we consider these words of promise this morning. Our Father in heaven, we ask your help as we consider your word. We thank you that you are near us now by your spirit. And we pray that he would illumine our hearts to help us 
see and understand the beauty of what you have promised to your people. We pray that you would meet us in our longings today. You know the darknesses and the gloom that we face, and you have the answer to all of these things. And so we pray that you would fill us with faith, joy, and hope this morning as we consider the person and the work of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we'll look at this passage in three points. First of all, we'll consider the context of the promise. Second, we'll really look at the text and consider the promise of God's king. And then third, we'll consider the call to seek God's king. So the context of the promise, the promise of God's king, and the call to seek God's king. So first of all, the context of the promise. We are diving into the book of Isaiah, which is no short book. And it's just um, such a pinnacle work in the Old Testament. I just, we can't get enough of reading the wonders of these prophecies. But we're diving into chapter 11, and so it's important to understand a little bit of what has transpired and what the people are facing. Isaiah's prophecies initially come to people who were experiencing very dark times. They had experienced prosperity under King Uzziah. Israel was doing well, but now Uzziah was dead. And the people, through the prophets, were realizing that the prosperity had not moved the people's hearts towards God, but instead had moved them away from him. And this was seen in how they were treating one another. There was not righteousness or justice in the land where they lived. Instead, widows and orphans were being overlooked, and the poor were being exploited by those who had money and power. And the people were going through the motions of religious worship. They were still offering sacrifices. They were still saying religious things. But their lack of care for those around them showed what was really going on in their hearts. And they began to turn to idols in addition to worship of the Lord. Inwardly, they were in steep moral decline. And they were also facing external threats. Assyria's power was growing, and it was becoming very clear that their war machine was headed their way as Assyria had set its sights on conquering all the way to Egypt. And so the people in their region, every nation was trying to figure out what to do. And there were all kinds of pressures to build alliances to stand against mighty Assyria. And the ones who were supposed to be leading them during these difficult times, leading them in righteousness, their kings were not leading them that way. Rather than fearing God and doing what was best for the people, they were instead fearing those who had power and money and doing what was best for themselves. And so by the time we come to Isaiah 11, and there are still many more chapters in the book, but even by the time we come to Isaiah chapter 11, the image that's really resounding in our minds is a field of smoldering stumps, trees which were supposed to represent kings and their kingdoms, would be cut down and burned in judgment. Chapter 6 foretold that this would happen to the people of Israel because of their sin. And chapter 10 said that this will also happen to Assyria, which 
on the one hand, is really good news. On the other hand, it would only be after Assyria was used by God to punish the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the context of our passage this morning, it's one of gloom and darkness. These charred, smothering stumps of of people who have turned from God and who are rightly experiencing his just judgment for the rebellion against him. And while Israel and Judah, as, as we hear these words of prophecy, they were in a unique situation, and we need to remember that. They were in covenant as a nation with God under the Mosaic covenant of blessings and curses. It's different than what we find ourselves in today. And yet I think we can relate, can't we, to their context and the difficulties they were facing One of the things that I love about Advent time is how relevant the passages always are to the situations that we find ourselves in. This is our backdrop every Christmas. We don't have to look very hard to see the darkness that's concealed by the twinkling lights, do we? Our prosperity hasn't produced an abundance of godliness. You don't have to look very far to see injustice and unrighteousness in our land. And externally, there are wars presently going on and rumors of wars that will come. And as the people of God, we regularly hear news of leaders who have disgraced the name of Christ. And there are many who are identifying outwardly as Christians whose behavior is far from Christ-like. And if we're honest and we stop and we look within, we feel the darkness of those pulls towards the idolatries of our own age, don't we? Perhaps you're experiencing different types of gloom and darkness this morning. Maybe physical sickness or suffering, broken relationships, severe trials, discouragement, anxieties, doubts. All of these things form the backdrop of gloom and darkness into which this message comes. What is God's message to people who find themselves in these dark days? It is a message of good news. News of a godly king and news of a God-filled world. And so we've considered the context of the promise, this context of gloom and darkness, but now let's go to the text and notice the promise of God's king the promise of God's king. Verse 1 of chapter 11 tells us that from this smoldering stump of Jesse, after all of these failed kings of Israel and Judah, a new David will spring forth, a living branch who is both Jesse's root and Jesse's shoot. It's an amazing thing that the New Testament will reveal the fullness of later. But I think there are two things in particular to notice that this text really highlights about this promise of God's king. The first thing is that he is a spirit-empowered king. God's king is a spirit-empowered king. We see that right away in verse 2. It says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then we see that the spirit of the Lord enables him to live and rule perfectly. And we have these three pairs of the attributes the spirit is producing in this king. So we have this sevenfold perfect perfect work of the spirit as he rests upon and empowers this son of Jesse to be able to live and rule. 
Do you notice what those pairs are? Wisdom and understanding. He understands the heart of the issue and he wisely can make the right decision every time. The spirit of counsel and might. He has the counsel of what the right course of action would be, but then he also has the might to do the right thing. And then it says, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What that means is he has an intimate and obedient relationship with God. He knows the ways of God, and he walks in fear of and right relationship with the Lord. In fact, verse 3 goes on to say that the fear of the Lord, that walking in the ways of God is the delight of this king. It's what he loves, what's pleasing to him is honoring the Lord. And this king is not just limited to normal human understandings of things, what his eyes see or what his ears hear, which we realize are actually quite limited perspectives, aren't they? But instead, he makes perfectly righteous decisions and judgments. The poor and the meek are cared for under his rule and treated with equity. He rules the entire earth with his word. And the wicked, the evildoers and the oppressors, they are destroyed with his breath. The power of the righteous word of this king. And verse 5 says that he's clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. This clothing language that the Bible uses there, that he has these belts that he wears, it's a way of symbolically speaking of who he is and his character. He's encircled with righteousness. He's robed in what is most profoundly right and good every time. And he's robed in faithfulness. He never fails. He always shows up in right relation for his people to do the good they need him to do. And so into this world of darkness, God promises a coming, godly, spirit-empowered king. But that's not all that God promises. This king's rule brings something more. We've seen that this king is a spirit-empowered king, but, but we also see that this king rules a God-filled world. He rules a God-filled world, and this is what we see in verses 6 to 10. Verses 6 to 8 give us this picture of this amazingly transformed creation. And even as we look at these words, which are poetry, they're meant to evoke an image for us, we're not really sure of all the hows of how these things work out. And if you're sitting there trying to figure that out, you might be missing the bigger picture. It's, it's let the image do its work. But do you notice that what it's saying? The most ferocious animals, wolves, leopards, lions, are safely dwelling, lying down, and grazing with the most vulnerable of animals, the lamb, the young goat, and the calf. In this imagery of this world that the Messiah rules, the predators become the pets, so to speak. It's amazing. So safe, so unassuming, so content to live this way that even a little child is able to lead along these lions and bears. 
(laughs) I just love it. Let your mind go to what this is showing us. And then verse 8, this it really creates a visceral reaction in us when we read it. And it's it's supposed to. It gives us a picture of peace that it's actually hard for us to even comprehend because we live in such a different world. The nursing child, the one who's just old enough to crawl or maybe kind of toddling around, he is playing where the cobras live. And then the toddler reaches into the hole of the adder, one of the most venomous snakes they know of, the most lethal snake you can find, and he's reaching in to play with this snake, essentially. It's a picture of a renewal, a transformation that's so complete that there's no longer even any threat of death. Can you imagine that if we were to walk outside and you see some of the little children in our church? And I don't think we have any holes where snakes are. We've tried to get rid of those. But say we did and you see a child reaching its hand down in the hole, everything within you would recoil over the threat of imminent harm and death. And yet this speaks of a world where that no longer even exists. The other night, uh, Darcy found these uh, videos that were supposed to be peaceful scenery that kind of had Christmas music and we were playing it on the TV and it was supposed to be an enjoyable thing. Um, and my family enjoyed it. I, I can't, I just am fixed to the TV. It kind of shuts down the whole rest of the night for me. But other people, I guess, can have these things on in the background. But this idyllic imagery, it was beautiful, snow snowscapes and then horses walking through the snow and then these beautiful shots of like a husky standing in the snow. And then all of a sudden, uh, our kids, a few of them kind of squealed a little bit. And I looked up and this animal is just ravaging another animal with blood all over the snow. And as soon as we, <laughs> we saw that happen, and then it's bloom snowscape and horses just kind of like prancing through the snow. And I thought, what an amazing picture. That is the world we live in, isn't it? If you've gotten these videos of like planet Earth, oh, it'll be so nice to show the kids planet Earth where the baby elephant gets left and dies. Um, Because that's the reality of the world that we live in, isn't it? That to have a montage of peaceful images of nature is actually going to be highly selective. Why? Because we live under constant threat of danger and death. It's so a part of us that it's hard to even imagine that what the prophet is holding forth is a world where we no longer have to edit those videos. We no longer have to be selective because what comes after image after image is no threat but only peace. And verse 9 really summarizes it so beautifully. It says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Do you hear those words? No more hurt. No more pain. No more destruction or corruption in the entirety of this new creation. And the place is described as God's holy mountain. This is a major theme in Isaiah, and as we saw in our Leviticus study, it's a major theme in the Bible. 
In chapter 2 in Isaiah, it's the mountain of the Lord that's raised up and the nations stream uphill to come and to know and to dwell with God. And by the time we come to Isaiah 65, what we find is that we realize that the mountain of God comes to speak of the entire new creation. The new heavens and the new earth are described as the mountain of God where he dwells in glory. And why is it like this that there's no more hurt and no more destroying in all his holy mountain? Well, the answer is there in verse 9. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. I find when I think of the word knowledge, I immediately think of facts. It's something that dies really hard in us, I think, in the English language. And so the earth being full of the mountain of God, I just, or the knowledge of God is just facts kind of floating everywhere, right? It's not saying that at all. It's saying that knowledge of God, creation rightly relating to him in intimacy and love is what is happening here. A knowledge of God that's so profound, so vast, that it's as full as the seas are of water. How full are the seas of water? They are filled to capacity. It's the fullness of all creation and all people from all nations knowing God and loving him and relating rightly to him. And verse 10 brings it all together. This Messiah that we were introduced to in verse 1, the the root of Jesse, he's the center of it all. Like a flag that's flying over the new creation, he is the signal or he is the banner of the fact that God's kingdom has fully arrived. And the image, the, the vision of this prophecy closes with all of creation as it was intended to be. Those beautiful words of verse 10, and his resting place shall be glorious. It's a resting place, a place where there's no more struggle, there are no more enemies, there's no more toil, there's no more death, just rest. And it's a glorious resting place, perfect rest in the glory of God. People from every nation, joined together with all creation under the perfect rule of God's king forever. And so amidst the gloom and darkness of a world that's marked by sin and suffering, God gives his people a prophecy, a picture, a promise of what will one day be. His spirit-empowered king, ruling in a world that's filled with all the fullness of the knowledge of God and all creation experiencing the rest of God's glorious dwelling among them. Do you long for that rest? Even as I preach it, all I can think is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Point three still has some good things too, but we can just linger here for a moment. But I think we're all tired, aren't we? Of the hurts and the destruction, the corruption. Weary of living a life that has threats around every corner. What this passage reminds us of and assures us of is that ache that we feel in our soul 
when we hear those words hurt and destroy and threat. That's a right ache and longing because it's our soul testifying that things are not as they are supposed to be. And the beauty of what Isaiah says is that it reminds us that we are not alone in our longing for rest. That God's people throughout the ages have been longing for this rest. But more importantly, God sees each threat. He knows each hurt. He sees every tear. And he grieves every destruction to his beautiful design. And he gives us the promise that one day they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. There is no place where it can even be happening. He will bring an answer to all of the hurts, all of the destruction, all of the threats that we face. And that's really good news. And it's good news for our neighbors as well, isn't it? You know, as we think about neighboring, as we think about those around us who don't know the Lord, part of the experience that you may have is there aren't a lot of people who are coming to us asking us the question, how do I deal with my sin or how do I get into right relationship with God? But you know what everyone is looking for? How do I find rest? How do I survive a world that's filled with hurt and threat and destruction? You see, our sense of threat hasn't lessened at all from the people of Isaiah's day. You know, we probably go through our lives with less fear of wolves and leopards and lions and bears, unless you live in Valley Center. Um, But studies are showing that people are actually more anxious than ever right? The threats of the entire world can be splashed across our TV screens in just a moment. They can pop up on our phones when we're in the midst of something peaceful. Our young people are growing up in a world with the never-ceasing threat of the internet. With just one wrong click, you're assaulted by images that will wither your soul And with one misplaced word or action, you're attacked, not by wolves or lions, but by trolls who can hound you relentlessly from the moment you wake up and even while you're sleeping as you're cyber-bullied, shamed, and canceled. You see, anxieties and fears and threats rage strong. And in the midst of this context, everyone's waving some sort of banner of what will provide relief. But the good news that we have as Christians, as we move toward those who are living in this same world of threats as we are, is that God promises to make all things right and to bring true and lasting rest. And so that's the good news of God's promise. But God's promise also calls for a response, doesn't it? And that brings us to our third point, the call to seek God's king. The call to seek God's king. You see, the promise of this God-filled world is not for everyone. Verse 10 tells us that the invitation is to all nations, and all peoples. 
But what it also tells us is this, that the peace and the rest of God's king is only experienced by those who have inquired of him. And that word there, inquired, may make us think of like asking questions of the king. But I think it's more helpful to think of what it means in terms of seek or to come to him for help. In the context, it's those who have come under the signal, under the banner, under the rule of God's king, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the ones who experience the rest of dwelling with God on his holy mountain. Now that might seem a bit exclusive, right? The only way you can experience the fulfillment of God's promise is by doing things his way, trusting in his king. Does God just want to get his own way? That seems like something not really welcoming or open-minded. Well, there's a sense in which, yes, I mean, he is the creator of all things and he can say how things should be. Who are we as the clay to speak back to the potter in that sense? But in this, his insistence in doing things his way, in worshiping his king, it's also because it's only through the person and the work of Jesus Christ that all of this is possible. It's only through coming to this king that this kind of rest can ever be achieved. You see, the problem that we're facing in our lack of rest isn't just that creation has been affected by the curse. It isn't just that the animals have gone astray and like to eat each other. The problem goes far deeper than that. God could refashion the entire earth. He could change the diets of all the animals. He could disarm all of the enemies. He could put us in a perfect paradise, a land flowing with milk and honey, perhaps. And what would happen? We, like the people of Israel, would realize that the real threat isn't just outside of us. It's actually within us. That sin has so profoundly affected us that we are the ones who hurt and destroy. We hurt and we destroy our enemies. We hurt and destroy even those we love sometimes. And we hurt and destroy even ourselves because sin has twisted us at the core. Isaiah also says each of us has gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and from the knowledge of God. But God, because of his grace, has promised not to leave us in this condition, but to send us his king. Not only to rule over a transformed earth, but to transform us so we can be the kind of people who can inhabit such a holy and wonderful place. And as the scriptures unfold, what we find is this reigning King Jesus is also the suffering servant. He's the root out of dry ground who came to bear our griefs and to carry our sorrows. And what we celebrate this time of year is that the Son of God became a man to save us from our sins. He lived every day of his life in perfect delight in God and walked in obedience to him. He did no violence. There was no deceit found in his mouth. And yet he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He bore our punishment so that we could have peace. He was wounded so we could be healed. He gave his life for us so that we could be freed from death. He was bruised by the serpent so he could crush his head and remove the threat of all of our enemies forever. And the wonderful truth of the gospel this morning is that that same King Jesus who will one day return and with the breath of his mouth he will judge the wicked is the same Jesus who is ruling and reigning now and out of his mouth comes an invitation to the very same wicked sinners. An invitation not to judgment, but to salvation. An invitation to receive the forgiveness that he purchased through his broken body and his shed blood. God calls you today to come under the banner, under the rule of this king by coming under the saving work of his cross, by looking to him and trusting him to save you from your sin and judgment that we deserve and instead to see, receive forgiveness and grace and life and the rest of being at peace with God. But the call to seek our king isn't just a call for those who have not yet been baptized. It's for believers as well. The wonderful news for all of us who are trusting in Christ is that this side of Christmas, we're not just waiting for Jesus' reign to come. Jesus' glorious reign of rest and of the knowledge of God has begun in us even now. And the risen Lord Jesus calls us to continue to seek him as our heavenly king. He calls us to come to him each day, to better know him in his love as he reveals the love of the Father to us, to come to him and to rejoice in the forgiveness that we have through his body and blood, that every time we fail to delight in the things of God, every time we hurt or destroy others with our words or our action, his blood has forgiven us from our sins. And though the journey may seem long and tiring while we wait for his return, we can be assured that he has given us the very same spirit who aided him in his time of his earthly ministry. The Spirit of our Lord is now indwelling us, giving us the wisdom, the understanding, the strength that we need to walk with him each day, coming under his humility and his grace until he comes again. And when he does, we will experience the fullness of what Isaiah held out in chapter 11, of a glorious resting place with our God forever. You see, Advent is about a time of longing. We are longing for our King to come again and to make all things right. But it's also a time of rejoicing. As the song says, in our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. And so may God help us 
as we consider his words of promise and as we seek our king afresh, to know the joy of following our heavenly king until he comes again in all his glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that even though it is sobering to consider the reality of the world we live in and the reality of what dwells within, that none of these things are a surprise to you, that you know the darkness that we are sitting in far more profoundly than we do. And yet, no matter how far that darkness goes, the light of your promise reaches down to it and promises that it will one day surpass and overturn even the things that are most gloomy and most difficult. We pray that you would strengthen us, strengthen our faith during this time, help us to rejoice in the rest that we have in the Lord Jesus, and strengthen us by your Spirit to walk faithfully until he returns, and we enjoy the fullness of your glory. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.